Mouse to Mouse, Episode 7. We Owned Disneyland. George Bernard Shaw famously observed that England and America were two nations divided by a common language. This is, of course, one of Shaw's, a man generally famed for such witticisms, more celebrated and perceptive comments in every respect save one. He didn't write it, and may very well never even have said it. There is a school of thought that actually attributes this quote, or something approaching it, to Oscar Wilde, who certainly did write in The Canterville Ghost in 1887 that we have really everything in common with America nowadays except, of course, language. I've even seen it suggested that the words were uttered by the most British of all icons, Winston Churchill. Well, he's the most British as long as you overlook the fact that he was himself actually half American. Clearly then, there's a problem here. Not only can't we successfully place this assertion about the divergence of our vocabulary, and thus by inference our cultures, in any of a range of mouths, but we can't even really be sure of the form taken by the line itself. Maybe it was invented by an advertising executive in London or New York to sell something. Maybe it was Will Rogers or even Walt Disney. The point here is that while the spirit of the assertion certainly holds more than a drop of dihydrogen monoxide, like my image of America or possibly yours of England, its accuracy very much depends upon where you happen to be standing to view it. A similar thing can be said of the Great British or American cooked breakfast. Both plates contain broadly similar components, but the soft British rasher of bacon, standing at ease next to its Cumberland sausage comrade, flanked by a squadron of baked beans and mopped up by a fried slice, might seem as odd to the American eye as their habit of combining pancakes, something that, to the majority of Brits, are an occasional dessert, with your own crisp, stood-to-attention version of cured pig meat does to us. This rather neatly, and almost as if planned in that way, brings me to the point at which having loaded up our breakfast platters in shifts, as one has to do with two picky-eating kids, I joined my wife at the table, she was sharing with another couple, and caught the tail end of their conversation, and thought I heard the chap say his wife's family owned Disneyland. I'm sorry, I began. All British conversations begin with an apology. I thought I just heard you say that your family owned Disneyland. Yes, the wife chuckled without further explanation, as if she had just confirmed that they owned a lawnmower. Disneyland, I stated again, with added emphasis, in a manner that roughly translated into either I've gone mad here, or you have. More smiles and nods ensued, until eventually, after further probing, it turned out that her family had owned the one-time orange groves on which the happiest place on earth now stood. While perhaps not quite as exciting as the original bombshell I thought I had overheard, this was still, given the nature of our quest, something of a scoop. Being the type who, as I have mentioned previously once or twice, tends to do a lot of research, this led in my mind to the story of the Dominguez tree, a Canary Island date palm given as a wedding gift to the former owners of the ranch that gave way for the development of the park in the 1950s. While the rest of the Dominguez property had been levelled by the bulldozers, the tree was personally saved by Walt Disney, presumably because of the appealing romance of its backstory, and still stands to this day in the heart of Adventureland, between the Bengal barbecue and the entrance to the Indiana Jones attraction. I enthusiastically offered this delightful little tale to our new friends, whose name I had not caught and was now too embarrassed to inquire after, in the hope that they would confirm that yes, it belonged to their family, and perhaps they were here on a pilgrimage to visit it. Alas, though, at this point they both looked at me blankly, knowing nothing of the tree, 
and it transpired that her family had sold the property to a family who had sold it to a family who had sold it to Walt Disney. Still, they were, in common with everyone we had met to date, very pleasant, and I'm always happy to meet people with a connection to Walt, even if it does turn out to be of the rather tenuous variety. This third and final day of our time at Disneyland was split fairly evenly, beginning with the morning at DCA to do some of the things that had gotten away from us the day before, and the afternoon rounding off the visit with a return to the original park. Spending the morning wandering around and enjoying many of the refurbished and improved areas of the second park simply served to underline to all of us how much we really liked it. As with his declining to ride Radiator Springs racers, despite his adoration of the characters from its source story the day before, Tyler steadfastly refused to have anything to do with the Monsters Inc. attraction, Mike and Sully to the rescue, so just like our breakfast arrangements, this was served up in shifts. While on balance, I think that it was probably the right thing for him not to ride the Carsland headliner, it was a shame that he was put off of the dark tunnel that entered Monstropolis, as I'm pretty sure he would really have loved seeing his two favourite monster pals in what was, all in all, a very moderate attraction. It was apparent fairly on in the afternoon, though, that the exertions of the previous night's near-miss with the lighting-up parade, and the fact that his slumbers had been interrupted soon after by the loud explosion of the Disneyland Forever fireworks, had taken their toll on Tyler, and left him distinctly underpowered. Mindful of the fact that we were about to hit the road the next morning, and not wanting to do so with a little man closer in personality to Grumpy than his dwarf brother Happy, we decided to say goodnight to Disneyland, just as the afternoon sun was beginning to think about setting. As Sarah too was conscious that she was about to enter a part of the trip that was going to demand a good deal of concentration from her, particularly on that first day of driving a new car and a new country, she too decided that an early night was in order. As much as I've been looking forward to seeing the parade and the fireworks at Disneyland, and let me say that they certainly lived up to my high expectations, from all my fanatical reading, World of Colour was the show that I was really desperate to see, and I dare say the subject of a high proportion of my passionate evangelising for the preceding few months. So it was then that even as I put on a brave face and suggested to Sarah that I was willing to forgo it for the sake of having a pair of fully rested children for the remainder of the trip, she was instantly able to see through my flim-flam and suggested that I might like to take Annabelle back with me to watch it, once Tyler was settled. The fact that I was inquiring if she minded such an arrangement while simultaneously biting her hand off at the offer must have confirmed to my long-suffering wife that she knew the overgrown juvenile she had married only too well. So, back at the hotel, we satisfied both kids' mac and cheese cravings before sending Tyler off to the land of Nod with a story and with a kiss goodbye to Mummy, my daughter and I were swiftly back out of the door and once more onto a bus bound for Disneyland. Having travelled the few blocks back and drifted into DCA, we consulted our fast passes and headed for the pre-assigned blue viewing area. Now, I know what you're thinking here. If I was willing to go back and sacrifice my chance of seeing the show... Why did we have fast passes? Well, perhaps this was another piece of evidence that CSI Sarah was able to factor into her analysis before determining that I might have had my fingers crossed behind my back whilst making the offer. As it turned out, once we had picked up a couple of Mickey ice cream bars and settled in for the wait, we found that we had a great spot directly across from Mickey's fun wheel. Although to be fair, as the wheel is 160 feet high and pretty much dominates the skyline of that area of the park, more or less everyone was directly across from it. After a short period of just sitting on the floor enjoying ice cream and a bit of daddy and daughter chat, the magical Disney voice in the sky announced that they were about to start the Fun Wheel Challenge, 
which it turned out was an interactive distraction, much like that old Hasbro electronic sequence matching game Simon. The wrinkle with this Disney version was that the plastic Simon disc was replaced by the aforementioned 160-foot Ferris wheel, and the actual matching part happened via the audience's ubiquitous smartphones. Being a 21st century 11-year-old, and thus genetically predisposed to a life in which both thumbs are able to tap out the entire plot of War and Peace in the time it would take me to manage LOL on an on-screen keyboard, Annabelle was naturally much better than me at this. While neither of us quite managed to be the fastest in the audience and win the ultimate prize of taking control of the lights on the wheel, we both enjoyed the game and it certainly provided a good way to pass the time while we were waiting for the show. Eventually, the moment came. The lights on Paradise Pier were extinguished and the opening bars of that famous Sherman Brothers theme song began to instantly evoke images of Walt being overwhelmed by frolicking tigers and covered by Tinkerbell's pixie dust explosions. And then, as if by magic, those pictures in my mind were replaced by ones that materialised before us in the giant mist screen that filled the lagoon. For the next half an hour, Annabelle and I stood hand in hand, transfixed by the pictures, the lights, the sounds and the thousands of dancing fountains that recounted story after glorious story that we and everyone watching shared in common. The parade of beloved songs and characters took us from the dawn of Walt Disney Productions through various golden ages of animation and even managed to shoehorn in a sequence from the newest Star Wars movie. Since at that time of viewing, this was still a coming feature, some might describe this section as little more than a shameless piece of promotion. In a more sober frame of mind, I might be entirely inclined to agree with them. But standing amongst the whooping and hollering crowd, high on emotion, and glancing down at a daughter, who was not much older than I was when my own dad had taken me to see the first film in the series in the late 70s, sober was not an apt description for me at that moment. This being the 60th anniversary of Disneyland though, the show, co-presented by Neil Patrick Harris and a rather familiar looking mouse, paid tribute not just to the magic of Disney, but the man behind it. While I'm sure that it was catching glimpses of favourite characters that Annabelle and many of the other guests drew their greatest pleasure during this spectacular presentation, for me the greatest character of them all was encapsulated in the archive footage of Walt. Often accompanied by narration in his own words, I think it's very likely that had he been around to view World of Colour, he would have approved at this innovative and immersive spectacular. After the show, swept along amongst the mass of satisfied humanity, we exited DCA for the last time and found ourselves with the sensible option of heading straight back to the hotel or the possibility of having one last peek around Disneyland. I suspect that you've already seen enough of my particular parenting style to conclude that it would be another hour or so before we reacquainted ourselves with the bus stop. With paint the night in full flow, we skipped along a crowded main street, glancing up at the famous light in the window above the firehouse as we went, and spent our extra time strolling around, soaking up the details and ambience of the place so we could take them with us in memories and use them as a guide for the adventure that lay in our immediate future. By this point, I was starting to feel a little peckish, having not eaten anything for at least half an hour or so. So I suggested to Annabelle that we grab a snack at the Tomorrowland Terrace. Somehow, it seems that Disneyland had decided to anticipate both our arrival and our next steps. As just as we entered the area, on a stage opposite the restaurant, a band struck up a familiar, though this time not very Disney tune, and a black leather-clad Elvis impersonator tore enthusiastically into Viva Las Vegas. It was time to hit the road. <laughs> 